So, um, <clears throat> I had some trouble finishing this sermon. It was a crazy week. My parents were in town. It was very busy. And uh, so everything kind of got pushed to the last minute. And then I had a hard time focusing yesterday. It was the events of the day. Uh, but I think, I think they're relevant. We've had a, we had a couple incidents recently over the last few years at our house. Uh, we live in the city. We live not far from here, my wife and I and my four boys. Um, but we don't live in downtown. We live in Central. Uh, Central is one neighborhood off downtown. Central, because it's pretty central to the city. Uh, but a lot of people these days don't know where Central is, even though it's a pretty large neighborhood. It's mostly residential. Um, and, and because it's mostly residential, there's not a lot of cool hip businesses and things like that. Um, but it's also very largely impoverished. The crime rate's probably a little higher than in Fremont or Ohio City or downtown. Um, but that's okay. We like it. Um, <coughs> we haven't really had too much problem with, with crime, but there's crimes of opportunity. And the biggest thing, if you've lived in Cleveland for any uh, amount of time, you know that the hottest commodity item in Cleveland is a bicycle. Uh, you could leave your car unlocked with the keys of ignition and probably have a better chance of it lasting the night than uh, uh, two bicycles on your curb. Um, and so we, uh, we left the garage door up uh, the other night. Technically, Sarah did. Um, just, <laughs> just saying. Uh, I, I want to be accurate. You know, one, one of the commandments... What that we're going to get to is not bearing false witness, and, you know, we would probably be slightly false, false witness, you know. Sarah left it up. Um, <laughs> one flesh, but we stand before the throne individually. It's a complicated thing, you know. I'd, um, anyhow, uh, we, we had our bike stolen again. Um, not all of them this time. They just stole mine and Sarah's, which, which kind of stunk. But, um, but I guess it's that season where the new models are coming out. The old ones are, are going on, on clearance. So, um, But it's funny. We've had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, six or seven bikes stolen, I think, uh, in, in 11 years. Uh, and that's pretty much the extent of all the crime that we've experienced is like seven bicycles stolen. Um, it's frustrating. And, and we come to this command, uh, you shall not steal. It's another one of these commands that really in Hebrew, it's two words. It's short and it's sweet. And I, uh, the, the big idea I think that I, I want to communicate this morning, what I think that we need to hear is that, that God entrusts us with property, with material, with goods, with valuable things for his glory. God entrusts us with value for his glory. And, and, and to, to unpack that, I, I want to look at the significance of this command, and, and I want to look at the scope of this command, and, and I really want to look at the scandal of this command. Because this might be the most boring command. And, and the, the reason I say this might be the, the most boring command is it's sort of like murder. There's, there's no real debates about whether you should do it or not. If, you, if I went out and asked 100 people if stealing was wrong, 99 of them would say, of course. Um, so I, I don't think I'm going to get a whole lot of pushback that, that stealing is wrong. 
Um, but unlike murder, it's not, it's not as salacious. You know, there's not that intrigue. You know, we all like a good murder mystery or, or a crime drama or something like that. And, and stealing just doesn't have that same uh, pizzazz. And so I think that we take this commandment for granted a little bit. But I'm going to suggest that maybe we should not take it for granted. Uh, because I think that this command reveals some extremely profound things about who God is and, and what he expects of us and how we should live. And, and so let's look at the significance. And the significance first, let's, let's define stealing. It's not that complicated, but it's depriving someone of something that is rightfully theirs. Stealing is depriving someone of something that is rightfully theirs. And that, that seems kind of obvious at first, doesn't it? But if you think about it, God gives ten commandments. And, and we've talked about this, and we'll talk about it a little bit again today, that, that in some ways these commandments are a little bit like summary commands. They get, they get broken up and, and, and divided into 500 plus commands throughout the law. Uh, some of which are related directly to this command, stealing, enhancing it, uh, expanding on it, giving the full scope of it. But in a list of just ten things, it seems kind of odd, doesn't it, that God would need to point out the fact that stealing was wrong. There's a lot of things that he could have included here. There's a lot of things that we debate that, we, we, that we're unsure of, is that right or is that wrong? And that would have been helpful in a list of ten things. God, give us that thing that we all are, are fiercely debating about. And he doesn't do that. He gives us uh, the ten that he felt were right. And, and my contention then is that in God's providence, he saw the need to make explicit Something that wouldn't always be intuitive to his people. And so while we might take it for granted that stealing is wrong, there, there is something, God must have stuck it there because he believes it wasn't always going to be obvious. And, and so we need to draw that out a little bit and, and see how to apply it to our lives. And I want to draw three sub-points then about the significance of this command. First, I think an inference that we can make, these, these, all these subpoints are really by way of inference from this and then, and then taking the Bible as a whole. First, the entire concept of stealing implies something of the notion of private ownership of property. Now, I'm not speaking as a capitalist here. I'm speaking as a, a biblicist, or I'm, I'm trying to. But uh, unless a person can have some sort of claim to own something, you, you can't really have anything stolen from them, can you? And so the very fact that God is saying that stealing is wrong implies that he recognizes some sort of legitimate right that a person has to something of value. So a commandment to not steal implies a person has legitimate control over some property to the exclusion of others and that this legitimate control can be defended, at least intellectually. I'm not necessarily saying with a sword or something like that. But So if you learned in a history class or a law class that uh, we did not develop 
the idea of private property law until the English came around in the 11th century. Sorry. Uh, the notion of private property has been around much longer. The Israelites, at least, had it about 2,400 years earlier, and that stands in stark contrast to autocratic societies in which all the land belongs to a single, single ruler, a king or a queen who bequeaths gracious use of the land to others at his or her pleasure. And it also stands in stark contrast to Marxist notions that private property is a late invention of our societal evolution. On the contrary, it was pretty ancient. People can own things. It's okay that they own things. And they have a reasonable right to protect what they own. That's all implicit in the notion of prohibiting stealing. Of course, part of the biblical narrative, we saw this uh, last year when we looked at Joshua to some degree. We, we preached through the book of Joshua at the beginning of last year. But even more than that, uh, part of the biblical narrative is that all of creation is God's. And the land of Canaan in particular was, was King Yahweh's gracious bequest to Israel. So this private property notion might be a little bit different than the way we think of it in the secular West. There, there is something of a stewardship idea to this notion of personal property. Consider passages like Leviticus 25, 23, where, where God, Yahweh, says, The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. So there is a sense in which, just as an earthly king might grant rights to his land, to a vassal, for the enrichment and strength of his kingdom, ultimately the Israelites' control of property, and ours, if we are Christians, is to glorify God with it. So the things that we have at value, uh, things we have of value, I should say, are, are things that are, are, are be, sort of a bequest to us and to be used to maximize God's glory. So, this is the second. Then, since Yahweh is the grantor of the property, it is his to decide to whom it belongs. And so, a second inference from this is that theft is a crime against God. And here's the third sort of inference that we can make from this passage, the third sub-point. The fact that elsewhere in the law... So if you continue in, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, elsewhere in the law, restitution for theft must be made to the aggrieved human, suggests that the stewardship is a hint of a, a restoration to the original created order. And, and what I mean by that is, if we look back to Genesis 1, we look back at Genesis 2, uh, mankind was created in God's image and was given dominion over the created earth. And so we shared in God's governing rule over the universe. That is what we were created 
to be created to do. And so he said, what does that have to do with making a restoration when you, when you steal something? Well, think about this. In Exodus chapter 22, just a couple verses later, God commands that if a person steals a farm animal, just as an example, steals a farm animal, and that animal is found alive, the person must pay double. They must, they must bring their animal back to the person they stole it from, and then they must give them another one. So if you steal an ox, then you got to give them their ox back and then give them another ox. Now, think about this for a second. If the aggrieved party, if God owns everything, the aggrieved party is ultimately God, isn't it? And so why are we giving the animal to the human? If, if this was a pure stewardship, notice, uh, a stewardship notion, you might expect something differently. So between undergrad and grad school, I took a year off. I worked at a Petco for a while, and so I was in retail. And if you've ever worked retail, you know one of the biggest problems in retail is what they call shrinkage. And, uh, it, and stuff gets stolen, stuff gets lost. Yeah, but a lot of it is theft from customers or employees. Now, if, if, if somebody stole something on my ship, um, as I, I got into to management for a little bit there. If somebody stole something on my ship, uh, that wasn't on me. That didn't come back on me. If we, if we caught the person then later, they didn't make a payment to me. They would make a payment to Petco. They would make a payment to the store, not to me. I, and as, as a manager, I'm, I'm a steward over the store's resources. The, the store has entrusted me to make sure that the company's property uh, and business runs smoothly and excellently. So I'm functioning as a steward, and yet nobody's making restoration to me. And so by, by suggesting that, the, that restoration must be made not to God, but to the person who has been given the stewardship of the item, suggests that it's more than what we normally think of stewardship, but they have a legitimate interest in there. And I think that that's because, again, if you go back to creation, we are to share in God's rule. We are to share in his governance, and we have a legitimate interest in those things. We might expect that, oh, will you give the one ox back to the person that you uh, stole it from, and you give a second ox as a sacrifice to Yahweh. But that's not what they do. They give the second ox to the person. So that's three inferences. They, here they are again. One, stealing implies the existence of private property. Two, stealing must be a crime against God. And three, despite that, stealing is a crime against people also. And if you think about that, if you think that God owns everything, he made everything, and it's rightfully his, and yet stealing is a crime against people, that's really humbling and mind-blowing if you, if you allow that to sink in. Because that's not where the logic would normally lead you. That's a pretty cool point, I think. Damn crazy. Um, but these three inferences give us some sense of the significance of this command, why it was important, why it mattered to spell it out to ancient Israel in roughly 1300 B.C. So let's look 
at the scope of the command. How far does this command go in outlining what stealing is? And first, the Bible clearly and obviously means that taking real property that belongs to someone without license or permission is stealing. If you take an ox without license, you must repay it. It's, it's theft. So we don't go to the store and take something off the shelf as our own. We do not take from our friends and our families without permission. It's not a question of how big it is. It's not a question of how small it is. It's not a question of whether we think they'll notice or not. It's a question of whose it is. That's not too controversial. But maybe sometimes we think uh, they won't notice the paper clips or, or whatever. But that's not the question. But let's go beyond that because I think most of us agree on that. Because the Bible goes beyond real property in its treatment of theft. Uh, for instance, included under the general rubric of stealing might be what we could call accidental theft. For instance, as God explains, if your cows get loose and graze over someone's field and ruins their crops, you didn't intend to do anything, but your interest caused their interest to be destroyed. And you're responsible for that. And if you did not repay them for their loss, that would be theft. It would be stealing something of value from them. And so it's interesting because if you think about it, one isn't stealing the land. It's not like your cows are running loose and, and taking the land up from them. The land is still there. And the land is still useful. But what maybe those cows have done in that situation is they've stolen the value that that land brings in that season. And so that not only are we looking at something that's an accidental theft, we might say, but it's also crossing the line from what we might call um, tangible real property to intangible property. You can't hold value. Value's a concept, right? Value's a concept. And yet... Uh, it, it, it was important to God, and, and people could hold value, and that value needed to be, uh, there needed to be restitution for that value. The upshot about that is that God is concerned about more than just tangible items. He's concerned about anything of value that a person has legitimate claim to. So the loss of value is significant. Not just a mere loss of the material. And so as a, a result, we are on solid ground when our society makes laws to protect what we call intellectual property. Now we could probably debate about um, how far that goes. How far should we protect somebody's intellectual property? Uh, when is it reasonable and for how long a period of time? But intellectual property is someone's and, and likely multiple someone's means of earning a living. It has real value. And it's theirs to do what they wish with it. Granted, there are gray areas in that. 
and like how far the government should go to protect that interest. But there's little doubt there is a thing of value that's a protectable interest. When I was in, in college, uh, the internet was, was all the rage. Uh, I was on the internet before anyone knew what the internet was. I was on Prodigy at 2,500 bits per second, 2,400 bits per second. I was on AOL at 14,400 bits per second. I went to the University of Illinois in the fall of 1997. My big selling point was that Illinois has always been a, a very tech-advanced uh, campus. Uh, and so when in 68, when Arthur Clarke wrote 2001 A Space Odyssey, the, the famous computer, uh, the HAL 9000, uh, went online, this backstory that went online uh, by a researcher at the University of Illinois. Um, and one of the big selling points is all the dorms were wired with high-speed internet. It blew us away. We were amazed. And so, like, I mean, a lot of you guys are young enough, like, you've kind of had the internet. You just, just had it. And so, like, just imagine, like, going from, like, like literally leaving the computer on all night long to download something not that big to just, like, boom, I... I like, I, I just came in the fall, and it's like suddenly, like, wow, I, I can download that all night long and fill my hard drive. Um, it was, I don't know how fast it was, uh, but it was crazy fast compared to the 56 kilobits per second we had ratcheted up to when I graduated high school. Uh, MP3s were a thing in 97, 98. Uh, but it still took a while before they really took off because the concept was cool, but hard drives were a lot smaller. And that meant we couldn't hold many songs uh, without sacrificing quality. And, and high-quality files could be difficult to play back, and so they'd be, like, choppy and chunky. And, like, yeah, it, w it wasn't great. Um, and that was on a pretty high-end Pentium 2 machine. So good times. Uh, but games... Software, that was a different story. You could download just about anything. And copy protection wasn't particularly strong yet because it was the early days of the Internet. And I don't recall the specifics. I mean, you could, I mean, we were loaded up. Anything you wanted, you could get. And I don't recall the specifics, but at some point that year or the next, I, I was convicted um, that I was effectively stealing other people's property. People had worked hard to produce that content, and they had a reasonable right to expect people to pay for it, or certainly to ask people to pay for it if they so chose. And I was depriving them of the value of their goods. And so as a result, I, I uninstalled or deleted everything I had that was copyrighted for which I didn't have a license, and that wasn't easy. Uh, you know, Apple, a few years ago, significantly put a dent in the music side of that equation. You know, the 99-cent download meant that a lot of people, a lot of people would rather pay for a safe, reliable, uh, high-quality way to get music legally. But, of course, anyone can steal if they want. And plenty of websites and services still exist, and 
People are using Cody boxes to stream movies illegally and file sharing websites for music and software is still rampant. And the bottom line is it's stealing. But arguably, the sin of theft goes even further. It goes to dishonest business practices that cheat others out of valuable assets, whether time or talent or treasure. Consider many verses in Proverbs, like Proverbs 11, chapter, uh, verse 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. You know, in, a, in a, an agrarian bartering society, much of the business was done on the weight of the goods and the weight of the money. And, uh, uh, you know, the money was silver, it was gold or whatever, and so you just judged it by the weight of it. And a scale that was not true, that didn't reflect an honest balance, could be used to gain an advantage in a sale. Uh, the, the closest thing I can imagine to our contemporary situation would be going to the, the West Side Market. I'm not saying that anyway the West Side Market does this, but you could imagine if somebody at the West Side Market, one of the produce vendors, for instance, or one of the, the butchers had a, had a, I'm not saying they do, but if they did, they had an improper scale, you know, that, that maybe weighed your food a little bit heavy so that they could pick up an extra 50, 75 cents per transaction, maybe help cover their credit card fees. Again, you could imagine a situation like that where they were just using an improper scale to cheat people out of things. Well, in a, a, a much less regulated society, you can imagine that that would be rampant. And so imagine, though, uh, what are the other possible ways that we could use a, a slight or, or a little bit of trickery or, or deceit to add or subtract a little bit of time from your day? Or to call in sick when you feel well. Or consider the, the ways a person, if they were so inclined, could manipulate the money to garnish a few dollars here or there. Trivial amounts, perhaps. But then if it's trivial, why are they doing it? Perhaps a, a person contracts with someone for one price, but later changes the terms, even though the Bible says a worker is deserving of his wages. And so the scope of stealing is enormous. It goes well beyond walking in a target and trying to walk out with something you didn't pay for. It's depriving anyone of the value of something that they have a legitimate interest in. But there's another facet we need to talk about, and that's the, the scandal of stealing. See, if God's scales are always true, and they are, and if God never takes without justice and legitimacy, and he doesn't, if the thief comes to kill and destroy, but Jesus comes to give life abundantly, then you'd think that the followers of Jesus would be models of anti-thievery. And unfortunately, the scandal of theft is that we are often not those sorts of models. Consider uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. And it, it's a letter to Christians. Zach preached from, from Ephesians uh, chapter 2 a couple weeks ago. And Paul has this line in there, this little sentence. It just kind of almost out of place. It almost seems like, what, where is this coming from? He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor 
doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And that's interesting for two reasons. Uh, first, it's a brief statement in a much longer letter that is clearly directed to Christians, converts, disciples, believers in Jesus Christ, those who've trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, and they have ostensibly repented of their sins. And yet, Paul says, let the thief no longer steal. Seems unusual. Second, it's interesting because a literal translation, if we want to get real literal, it would be a little awkward, but a very literal translation might be something like this. Let the one who is stealing no longer keep stealing. There's a sense here that perhaps some who were thieves in their former manner of life, in some way, shape, or fashion, have continued to be thievers. And the remedy is productive labor that blesses others who have true need. So, see, a Christian shouldn't steal. And he shouldn't steal because he loves Jesus more than the things he would take, whether it's time or talent or treasure, whether it's tangible goods or intangible intellectual property. She loves Jesus more. And a Christian shouldn't steal because she knows that the greatest needs that he has or she has are already met. And we can rest in Jesus. So the greatest need that we have is righteousness. See, Paul says we have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. And that includes all of us because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is a righteousness gap. God who is righteous and holy will not endure being in the presence of unholy, unrighteous sinners among which we all are, myself included. And so to be in God's presence would be, as Isaiah says, woe to me for I am ruined, would be our destruction. And so it's, it's promised. But God did not desire to leave us in this state. And so he makes for a way that we can become righteous again. Not on the basis of anything that we can do. Not, not that we can do lots of good works because we could do good deeds and, and serve our communities and, and um, stop our thieving all we want, but we still have a tainted record, don't we? Your past is not erased by your future. And if you think that you can make your future better enough to outweigh your past, you don't understand how bad your past is. When we, when we sin, it's not that we've just done a bad thing and now we can do a couple good things and make up for it. No. 
because we have sinned against an infinitely good God. We have sinned against an infinitely righteous God. And so our good deeds might be worth pennies. But our sin is an infinite debt that we can never hope to repay. But God wishing that we, we not stay in this miserable state took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived as we lived and yet was without sin. He offered his own life on the cross. He died the death that we deserve to die. He paid the debt we could not pay so that all who turn to Christ in faith and repent of their sins can be forgiven. And they receive a righteousness, not that that's their own by their own works, but it's the righteousness of Christ accredited to them. It's counted on their account so that before God, we appear clean despite our filth. Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, all these worldly things will be taken care of, will be added unto you. Our greatest need, if we are Christians, our greatest need, this righteousness gap between us and, and God has been covered. We have been brought near to God by the blood of Jesus Christ and there is nothing that we need to steal but yet we are a people too often at least there are those who go around professing the name of Christ who are flagrant stealers firstly we can look at people of trust these are the ones we always like to point to uh, the church a block from my house had a pastor embezzling funds though he was being paid six figures a year um that finally went down. He was sentenced in 2008. Another couple pastors went down in 2008 for, for significant embezzlement. Last year, a priest and a bookkeeper uh, for Catholic Charities were caught in embezzlement. A couple years ago, not just uh, about three years ago, four years ago, a, charter, a church that ran a charter school not far from here in Cleveland uh, found that the pastor was in hot water and he was finally sentenced. So bad that a number of years ago, a neighbor of mine happened to come to a church I was at a few uh, at the time on a Sunday, and I happened to be preaching that Sunday on money. Um, I was preaching chapter by chapter, you know, verse by verse, you know. Um, so it was just the passage I came to. I wasn't, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to preach on money this week because I really want people to just start giving money. And I, I don't usually preach like that. Those of you who've been here for a while know we preach usually, uh, you know, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And so we just we let the Bible dictate what we talk about. And so it was the same that morning. And I, I don't think I'd ever talked about money in that church before, actually. Um, but that was the passage. That was the passage that came in. It happened to be the Sunday that she was there. And uh, she didn't come back. Now, I, I don't think she was a Christian, but at the same time, I, I think, she had come a couple of times before that, but she didn't come back after that, and her son told me that she didn't like that message. Um, 
I, I think part of her response was that she was already a little suspicious of churches and money. And that should never be. The Bible warns us of wolves in sheep's clothing. And I don't know if all these ministers and pastors and priests and servants were wolves and fake sheep. But I wouldn't be surprised if many of them were. That's why the Bible asks us to confront sin. And if, per if a person is unrepentant, to cast them out. And if those who knew about these things, and let's be honest, someone probably knew in many of these situations. Perhaps the name of Jesus would not have been sullied the way it was. It's as old as Ananias and Sapphira. You know the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Uh, <clears throat> there was a tremendous need in the church of Jerusalem. And the reason why there was tremendous need in the church of Jerusalem, we know from history, it doesn't tell us in the Bible, but we know from history that many Jews wanted to die and be buried in Jerusalem. And so they would reach the end of their lives after their working years, and they would retire, so to speak, to Jerusalem. Of course, they didn't have a means of income. They didn't have family there. And so they relied on the synagogues to take care of them. And so the Jewish community, that was just they, they knew people would come to Jerusalem to die, and, uh, and, and so they would take care of each other. But then, of course, you've got Christians who are probably not being welcomed very much in the synagogues anymore. And the church is taking on this mandate of caring for all these widows and widowers and, and, and elderly people who don't have a means of income who are now stuck in Jerusalem. And one of the things that a lot of the Christians are doing is they're selling their property. They're selling their property and they're giving it to the, they're laying it at the feet of the apostles. They're giving it to the apostles and they're saying, take care of the widow, take care of the widowers for us. We want to make sure that these people are not starving to death. And this couple named Ananias and Sapphira had some property and they sold the property and they made it seem like they were giving all the money to the church. But they actually held back a portion of it for themselves. See, they wanted the glory of making this big a gift. But they really wanted to hold on to the finances. It wasn't, the problem wasn't, right, the problem wasn't the amount of their gift. The problem was their deceit in their gift and wanting to hold back something from God. Of course, their fate was not pleasant. But there's another way that professed Christians can steal. We steal from one another. We steal from the world. But we can steal from God, too, directly, can't we? All stealing is stealing from God, but we can steal direct, directly from him. This was a, a problem in ancient Israel. And so uh, it, in uh, uh, the prophets, um, sorry, I lost my, lost my train of thought here. Let me just. read directly from the scriptures if I can.
why am I, um, I'm, I'm blanking here on the project. I'm sorry, it was a long night. Um, but the, <laughs> the, the prophet is speaking in God's name. And, um, and God says, well, man, rob God. Yet you are robbing me. And you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing till there is no more need. Now, this is a, a passage that's very often used to guilt people into giving more money to the church. Um, sometimes by people I would say are thievers and swindlers. So I want to throw out some caveats. <coughs> Be careful about how you interpret this passage. The ancient Israelites were commanded to give a tithe. They were commanded to give a, a tenth. They were actually commanded to give three different tithes. The people who rely on the Old Testament and want to say that we should be giving a tithe, they really, I mean, if you believe that, great. That's, but, you know, what Paul said, Paul said, if you, if you uh, are going to keep the law, you're obligated to keep the whole law. And there's not one tithe in the Old Testament, there's three. So if you're going to be legalistic, there's the one tithe, there's the second tithe, and there's the every three years tithe. So that's 23 and a third percent. But I don't teach that because I don't think that that's biblical. I think that's a misunderstanding of how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament. But the tithe was binding on Israel as a, as a society uh, in part because they had to live as a, a nation and as a state also. Um, and so yes, there's a contribution to God on one hand, but it's, it's also very similar to a tax on the other hand. So I am not telling you a tithe. I'm not telling you not a tithe either. I'm telling you that there's a lot of people for whom a tithe is probably way more money than they should be giving. And there's a whole lot of Americans for whom a tithe is probably a cop-out. You know, so as Paul says, you should give generously um, as, you know, God has, uh, and by through prayer and through the listening to the Spirit, what he has uh, instructed you to give and be faithful to that. So don't hear a tithe. Also, there is no promise of material blessing here. Thank you, Brian. That is. I thought I thought it was in Malachi, and then I flipped to Malachi and uh, Malachi three eight. Thank you, Brian. Um, I flipped to Malachi and like I didn't see it there, and I got flustered, and then. So yes, Malachi three eight. Um, which got me flustered again now. Thanks. But thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do appreciate it. It just, it just uh, yeah. Um, there's no promise of material blessing here. I, I, I know you say, well, it says, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, and see if I won't open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing so there is no more need. Yes, but in the context of Israel, uh, whom God had, had sent uh, uh, famine on their lands because of their unfaithfulness and their unrighteousness. 
and they were deliberately not doing so. God cursed them. He, he put uh, destruction in their midst. And he's basically saying, if you repent, your, those curses will be removed from you. So these guys on TV who are swindlers and thieves, not all the guys on TV are swindlers and thieves, but there's a lot of guys on TV who are swindlers and thieves, and they are living the lives of multimillionaires, almost billionaires, off the backs of poor people and telling them, look, if you give to God, give to me, give to my plane and my mansion and my yacht, God will bless you, and people are waiting for their blessings still and not receiving their material blessings. That's not the point of this passage. Because again, our context is not the same as ancient Israel. But what is clear from the passage is that it is possible to not give God what is his due, what is his right what he is commanding you to give of him in your time and in your talent and yeah in your treasure and 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 that is you know uh, to some degree between you and god um, no one knows your work schedule better than you nobody knows your social life better than you no one knows your checkbook better than you uh, you know, nobody knows your skill set better than you, except God. But I think that if we are going to be Christians who say, absolutely, you should not be stealing, then we need to be people who don't rob God. And if we're going to be people who don't rob God, then, then we need to be people who are prayerfully asking God, God, how is it that you, you have given given me so much and it's rightfully yours and yet you've said it's mine and I want to govern what you've given me well for your glory and so how is it you want me to steward that God so that I don't steal from you how do I need to rearrange my budget how do I need to rearrange my schedule how do I need to to, to take what I'm able to do, meager as it might be, and, and, and give it in service to your gospel? How am I using my time and my talent and my treasures to make disciples, to teach those disciples to follow Jesus better? That, that is ultimately the mission of the, the church, this church and every church. How am I doing that? And that doesn't necessarily mean money in the offering box. Maybe it does for you, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. That might just mean that, you know, your lunch break, you know, is, is instead of a, a, a selfish uh, time, maybe because maybe that's how you use it. I'm not saying you do, but may, maybe for you, <clears throat> your lunch break is selfish. And maybe you turn that outward and, and you use your lunch break to to spend time with somebody, to minister to them, because maybe that's the way God is, is calling you to give of your time and, and your treasure, is to share the good news of, of Jesus uh, with a non-believer or with somebody who is a believer but needs to grow deeper in their 
faith. Uh, you know, so there, there are many ways. Maybe, maybe there is a, a missionary that you need to be supporting. Maybe there's missionaries that we need to be supporting in prayer. And we are feeling God with our time and not praying for the work of this church, for the work of missionaries that are in the field, for the work of the gospel. That a bunch of white supremacists would hear <laughs> good news of Jesus and repent of their sins. Pray for them. So we can steal from God, too, directly. God entrusts us with so much of value for his glory. And we either use it for his glory or we rob him. Let us be people who give abundantly as Jesus gave abundantly. And not those who steal and kill and destroy. Let's pray. Father. Father, move us into grace. Because as we work through the law. We are so thankful for your forgiveness. And your goodness. And your love for us. Despite our shortcomings. Despite our failures. Despite our sin. Don't let us become abusers of grace, God, but for those of us who have placed our trust in your son Jesus, we are grateful that though we are thievers, you are a forgiver. But God, when we confront your law that is holy and that is good, point us back to your son, point us back to the cross. We find power to live more faithfully and the comfort of knowing that we are forgiven. And I pray for those thievers who have not found your forgiveness, that they would turn in repentance and in faith in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.